Well, good morning, church. If you're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. I was reminded that we began this journey through the book of Genesis two years ago. Uh, we took a short break for the book of Ephesians and, and, and the Psalms, but today we reach the, the close of this glorious book about our glorious God and his plan to take a broken world and make it new again to take our broken lives and make them new creations. It's been a joy to walk through this book and consider our good God together. If you're looking at Genesis, or if you're looking at the Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, Genesis 49 is found on page 43, and I encourage you to keep your Bible open as we read God's word together this morning. Y'all there? All right. Well, back when I was in seminary, I worked to kind of pay for tuition and the bills as a window cleaner. I would do commercial buildings all year around, but in the summer, I would add residential cleaning as well. And to reach the windows of a second or three-story, a two- or three-story home, I used a, a fold-up gorilla ladder. And the ladder was rated to hold 375 pounds. I'm not 375 pounds. Um, and since the, the ladder did its job perfectly fine for four consecutive summers, I climbed the ladder each summer without a second thought. Didn't think twice about it. But one afternoon, I was up about 20 or 25 feet high above the ground, finishing the last window of my afternoon when I heard a crack. And in an instant, the ladder snapped in two in the middle and crashed to the ground with me in the mix of a pile of crumpled metal. That ladder that failed to hold me up illustrates the danger of us having deficient or defective hopes. Hopes that promise to deliver and give us life but can't. Now, when life is good and nothing seriously wrong in our lives, we may skip through lives with our defective hopes, unaware that the object of our hope could buckle at any moment. We're just oblivious to that. And in that sense, ignorance is bliss. But what happens when the business that you built goes under? or the relationship that you invested in for years falls apart, or the next election doesn't deliver. Awards and scholarships may make basketball seem like a hope to build your life upon. Maybe it'll carry your life to the end until a, a career-ending injury happens. Defective hopes put our lives on a roller coaster. We're either on top experiencing the, the fleeting thrill of success or we are in the pit of despair because the ladder of our hope has just snapped in two. And now what do we do? How do we get off this roller coaster? When we come to the end of Genesis, we're gonna see and visit two different funerals, one for Jacob and then one for Joseph. So this really is a, a funeral text. Ecclesiastes 7 tells us, listen, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why? Funerals are painful but in forcing us to stare at death, they help us to examine what we truly value. They help us do a little self-assessment and, and look at what we're living for. In that sense, a funeral calibrates our hopes so that when we arrive at our funeral, we don't have any regrets. As we walk through the text this morning, we're gonna visit these two funerals, and in these two funerals, we're gonna learn three lessons, and those will be our points this morning. Jacob's funeral provides lesson number one, if you're taking notes. 
Lesson number one, God is faithful, so live like a sojourner. God is faithful, so live like a sojourner. We're going to see this in Genesis 49, verses 29 to 50, verse 14. So let's look at the text together. Genesis 49, verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there, and there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, they, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation and made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the, at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah in the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So here in Jacob's funeral, we see the close of Jacob and his life. And we've had a chance for a number of chapters to walk alongside and get to know Jacob. And as we've gotten to know Jacob through Genesis, we have seen a man who has struggled to trust God. We've mentioned how that's why the text sometimes refers to him as Jacob, which means the cheat, and other times it refers to him as Israel, the name that God gave to him, the man who strived with God. Kind of goes back and forth in the text. Jacob was a man who wanted to trust the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and then his God. But he was conflicted. He also at times wanted the praise of the world. He also at times wanted to be respectable in the eyes of the world. When we look at what he was afraid of in his life, his fears centered on missing out on something that he wanted in life. Status, a beautiful wife, wealth, And that longing for what this world had to offer him at times is why he lied and cheated. Because in his fear and his doubts, he was trying to make this world his home. But praise be to God, in the sunset of his life, Jacob was set free from that which he once feared. Notice after he died in chapter 50, verse 3, we're told that the Egyptians wept for Jacob for 70 days. It's a long funeral. It's a long period of mourning. 
And I think one of the reasons that Moses includes these details is that because in Egypt, the number of days that you wept for an individual reflects their status. So for example, when Pharaoh, when a Pharaoh died in Egypt, Egypt would mourn for 72 days. When the king, the Pharaoh died, it was 72 days of mourning. Jacob was two days short of the Pharaoh. In other words, Jacob, if he wanted it, Jacob could have had a big, impressive state funeral with all the pomp and circumstance and honor of Queen Elizabeth's state funeral last September. Jacob could have left his mark in the history books of Egypt. He could have been remembered in the history books of Egypt as somebody, almost on the level of Pharaoh. But notice, he commanded his sons. This was not a suggestion. He commanded his sons in verse 29, chapter 49, verse 29. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. So instead of having this fancy, elaborate state funeral that would leave his mark on Egypt, he says, no, bury me in that little ordinary cave in the promised land of Canaan. What happened to Jacob? Well, Jacob was set free from what he once feared by coming to grips with who God is as God and understanding who he was. Namely, that in this life, he wasn't home yet. He was a sojourner. He was an exile. He was a stranger. He was a foreigner passing through to his home. God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the land of Canaan. God was making it clear to them, that's your home. That's your home. The lowercase g gods of Egypt were not Jacob's God. Yahweh, the only true God, was his God. And God's people were his people. Look at verse 29. I am being gathered to my people. These were his people. This was his God, and the land of Canaan was the land that God had given him. That was his home. So, yes, he, he can be thankful for Egypt's hospitality during, during the famine, but this wasn't his home. He was a sojourner. So Jacob's command to be buried not in Egypt, but in the promised land of Canaan, actually reflects to us, the reader, his trust, his faith in God. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So if God says to Jacob, this is your land, to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, this is your land, Jacob believes it. That's why he wants to be buried there, his faith. And so Jake, Joseph, following his father's command, goes to Pharaoh. He asks for permission to take his dad. Don't bury my dad in Egypt. Bury him in Canaan. Joseph, Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh, and so off they go. They're making their trek from Egypt all the way northeast to the promised land. So if you, if you can picture Egypt and Africa, they're gonna go a little bit northwest and then north up into the promised land of Canaan. So the account of Abraham's death, when, when, you, read, when you read about the account of Abraham's death in Genesis, it's really pretty brief. Moses gives three verses. When Isaac dies, he gets one verse. But when Jacob dies, Moses spends 19 verses. Why all this detail? We learn about who attended the funeral. We learn over and over. He mentions this lamenting and this mourning. And then the words bury or buried, I don't know if you notice this, those words bury and buried are repeated 15 times like a broken record. Why all this detail? Why mention burying or burial 15 times? Why, all the de why 19 verses? I think one reason is that Moses is slowing the narrative down like this to show us that Jacob's exodus from Egypt was a dress rehearsal of a future exodus of God's people. And, and, and the details of this text highlight this for us. 
So if, normally, if you're, if you're going to go from Egypt to the promised land, what you would do is you would kind of go straight north. It saves you some time. You go straight north, you kind of hug the border of the Mediterranean Sea, and then you cut inland to go into the promised land. But that's not what we're told they did. They, they took a trek where they went up and were told twice that they went beyond the Jordan. Verse 10, they went beyond the Jordan. That's the path they took. Well, why does Moses tell us that they, they went beyond the Jordan? Because Jacob's corpse took the same route that his descendants would take in their exodus 400 years later. Or notice another detail. In verse 7 and in verse 9, we're told that they went up out of Egypt. Why, why that verb, went up out of Egypt? Well, because in Exodus 13, we learn the same thing. When Israel left Egypt, they went up out of Egypt into the promised land. Or another detail. Verse 8 tells us that only their children and their flocks and their herds were left behind. Everybody went to the funeral except for their children, their flocks, and their herds. Now, if you're familiar with the, the book of Exodus, that's, that's, that should ring some bells. Because when Pharaoh said, okay, finally, I'll let you go and worship your God out of the land of Egypt, but if you leave Egypt, you must leave your children, your flocks, and your herds behind. It's an echo of a, another exodus of the people of God. And so all these details that Moses intentionally includes in, 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 in Genesis 49 and 50 are meant for these first readers, the Israelites. They, they would read these details in Jacob's funeral and they would be hugely encouraged by all these connections that they would notice. Jacob was a sojourner. He was going home. He was leaving Egypt going home. But his trip was a dress rehearsal, a foreshadowing of when God would bring up Israel, all of the people of God, out of slavery in Egypt, back into the promised land. What an encouragement to the Israelites reading this text. Church, Jacob's funeral reminds us that not only the Israelites in the Old Testament were sojourners, Jacob's funeral is a reminder for us in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that we also are referred to as sojourners. We're not home yet. Our citizenship is, yeah, you might be an American citizen, but that's not your ultimate citizenship. Philippians 3 says that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our true identity. That's what makes us a family. We're fellow citizens of heaven. We're not home yet. You're a sojourner. I'm a sojourner. Living as a sojourner comes with temptations in this world, though. We're either tempted to assimilate with the world, or other times we're tempted to isolate from the world. And we have to be wary of both those temptations. We're tempted to assimilate. We want to fit in. We want to avoid the persecution or the hostility of this world. We want to get ahead like the rest of the world. And in those moments, we, like Jacob, are tempted to assimilate with the world. Just, just do what they do. But if we become like the world, adopting its views and its attitudes and its practices, the Bible is clear. We end up sacrificing our holiness. We lose our distinction from this world, or as Jesus says, we lose our saltiness. And in, in effect, we lose our witness. If we become like the world, we lose our witness in this world. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you, Listen, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter's very clear, as sojourners, we must fight against the temptation to assimilate with the world. We must be holy, distinct, different than the world that we live in. You got it? But we must also fight the other temptation to isolate ourselves from the world. We must be distinct from the world, different in our character, even if being different in the world means hostility or persecution from the world for our differences. But we cannot, as a church, pull up the drawbridge, build a Christian fort, and isolate ourselves from the world. Why? Because Jesus called us to evangelize the world, to make disciples of all nations. Those are our marching orders. 
We're called to tell the good news to a world who doesn't have good news apart from Jesus. Church, we are not home yet. Don't make this world your home. Don't make the temporal what you live for. Live for eternity. We're sojourners and we're on our way. And God is faithful. God God promised us an inheritance and God is faithful to his promises to get us home. But when we look out into the world and we look in our own hearts, <laughs> one of the questions we might ask is, well, how is that possible? Okay, God's faithful. He made his promises. God's faithful. But how? How is this possible, God, when the world is filled with pain and disappointment and chaos and my own heart is filled with sin? How are you going to get me there? Lesson number two. God is sovereign, so live without fear. God is sovereign, so live without fear. And we see this in chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Look with me at God's word again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's remarkable. We see Joseph's kindness, his confidence. He's comforting the people, the brothers, who wanted to kill him. That's remarkable. But we need to back up a little bit. After Jacob dies and they bury their father, the the brothers and Joseph, they come back and the, the, the brothers begin to get a little anxious. They become fearful. Had Joseph really forgiven them? Or was Joseph just biding his time until dad died so now that dad's dead, he could stick it to them? So worried, they they come to Joseph, they confess their sin, they confess the evil that they had done by betraying him, selling him into slavery, and then lying to dad about it. They call it what it is, it was evil. And like the prodigal son in Luke 15, they, who came home and just hoping that maybe dad will take me as a servant, they come to Joseph bowing down and they declare to their brother, we are your servants. Not your brother, we are your servants. But Joseph looks at their saying all of this. They, he looks at them bowing down and he looks at their brothers saying, can we just be your servants? And Their fear was unnecessary. Listen, when Joseph revealed his identity, remember he was testing them in chapters 40 and 41 and 42 and 43, but when Joseph finally reveals his identity to them, I'm your brother, in chapter 45, he really forgave them. He meant it. His forgiveness of his brothers was real. His forgiveness of his brothers was complete. He wasn't just biding time, faking it. He meant it. And I think that's why Joseph weeps in verse 17 when they spoke to him. They had lived, at this point, when they came back for the famine, they had now lived with Joseph. They had been reconciled to Joseph and they have lived with Joseph for 17 years. That's 17 years of experiencing Joseph's kindness. 17 years for his, his, him to prove his faithfulness and that he meant that he forgave them. 17 years. 
and they're still struggling to believe it. Have you really forgiven us? I think part of the reason he weeps is because he's thinking, has, has, is our relationship so broken that you are going to assume the worst in me after 17 years? That you think I hate you and I'm, I'm going to pay you back now? Come on, guys. If Joseph's forgiveness was based upon their performance, well then, yeah, their, their fear would be justified because they were awful. They were cruel. They were wicked towards their brother. But Joseph's forgiveness was not based upon performance. It was based upon grace. And grace is a gift. It's, it's by definition Grace is, by definition, not deserved. If you think, well, okay, I deserve this. It's not grace anymore. Grace is, by definition, a gift, an undeserved gift. And he offered his forgiveness toward his brothers as an undeserved, gracious gift. The brothers struggled to believe that they were forgiven, and he seeks to comfort and assure them, no, my my forgiveness was real. But just as they struggled to believe their brother's forgiveness, I think it points to how we as Christians also struggle at times to believe that God has actually forgiven us. When, 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 we, when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law and we see an accurate reflection of who God is and who we are and what we've done, we like our, these brothers see our evil deeds, our evil thoughts, our wicked intentions, and we, like these brothers, might become fearful. You became a Christian years ago. You trusted in Christ and his grace years ago, but when, you, when you're reminded of your failing, your sin, you might begin to think, am I really enough? Am I a good enough dad? Am I a good enough wife? Am I a good enough employee? Have I, am I a good enough Christian? Has God really, really forgiven me? Because this world's economy of performance means acceptance has crept into a lot of our thinking. Friends, if God's forgiveness is based on our performance, then we, like the brothers, are in trouble because we sinned and the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. But our hope, listen, church, our hope is not in ourself. Our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in his promises and his faithfulness. So if you're struggling to believe that God has forgiven you and you rightly see your sin, stop looking at yourself and look to God. Look to his promises Let his word speak what's true over you, not what you feel about yourself. Well, we're looking, we've looked so far at this middle section from the brother's perspective. They're they're afraid because they're they're not sure that their brother has actually forgiven them. But we also need to look at this whole middle section from Joseph's point of view. The brothers had sinned against Joseph, but from Joseph's point of view, he had been grievously sinned against wronged by his brothers, being betrayed, being enslaved, being falsely accused for years, imprisoned, estranged from his parents, his, his dad and his family and his friends back in the promised land. Joseph, after during all those years, Joseph may have wondered, my goodness, everything I do just leads to more trouble. Is God angry with me? Is God punishing me? Am I enough? What's up? I trust God. I love God. Why does everything I do lead to more pain? Or he may have struggled with the fear that he'd never see justice. Maybe his brothers would get away with the evil that they had done to him. He's in Egypt. They're in the promised land. What can he do? And so when we meet Joseph, in his old age, if we didn't know this story, we might expect to meet a crotchety old man filled with bitterness, self-pity, 
hatred for those who wronged him. But that's not what we find. When we meet Joseph in the end of Genesis, we find a man who's confident, a man who's generous, a man who speaks kindly to those who wronged him, a man who is quick to forgive. And I think we're meant to ask, okay, how? How did this happen in Joseph? I think one of the things that this text says is that he was able to be generous and kind and confident and forgiving because he saw and believed and rested in the fact that his God is sovereign. His God is in control over all things. There is not an inch of this universe that is not his and that he does not have command over. And Joseph believed that and it transformed him. Look again at verse 20. He says to his brothers who are groveling, listen, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We, we saw this kind providence of God in Genesis 45. We see it again here in chapter 50. Joseph, Joseph does not belittle the sin of his brothers. He doesn't say, oh, guys, listen, don't feel bad about it. I know you didn't mean to hurt me. It was just a little mistake. It was a slip up. The way that we often talk about our sin. He doesn't belittle sin. No, he, he's, he, he, he's pretty straightforward. He is plain spoken. He says, no, you meant evil against me. He calls it what it is. You meant evil against me. It was evil. It was wicked. It was wrong. But in the same breath, he doesn't mope around in self-pity, hoping that somebody will feel sorry for him. He knows the evil that was done against him, but he also knows that evil will not have the final say in his life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So his brothers sinned. They made the choice to sin. They were responsible for their sinful choices, and they'll be held accountable to God for those sinful choices. But the brother's sin was not in the driver's seat. God is in the driver's seat of Joseph's life. God is in the driver's seat of history. God is in control. God is sovereign even over his brother's sinful choices. And since God is in control, and because God is good, he meant what they meant for evil, he meant their sinful choices for good. In bringing, Egypt, in, in bringing Joseph to Egypt by their sinful choices, God meant to bring Joseph to Egypt to raise up a man who would save the lives of thousands of people during a seven-year-long famine. Similar to how the wicked choices of a kangaroo court meant to kill Jesus in the New Testament were also meant by God to save the lives of and rescue sinners like you and me. Praise be to God that God in his sovereignty, in his rule, that he has the final say over everything that happens to you and me in our life. And so knowing that Joseph reassures his brothers in verse 19, do not fear, do not fear brothers, for am I in the place of God? And the answer to that question is, no, he is not in the place of God. Joseph, Joseph was free to forgive. He was free to show his brother's kindness because he knew that there's a God who exists and there's a God who is holy. There's a God who is just. There's a God who is the judge of all evil. So he doesn't need to be the judge of all evil. Joseph knew his lane. God is God and he is not. And he's happy with that. Oftentimes what gets us into trouble is that we do the opposite of what Joseph 
did. Afraid that we won't get justice when something was done against us, when an evil was done against us, we end up putting ourselves in the place of God. We get tired of waiting on God. We're not sure that God's gonna come through. So we put ourselves in the place of God and we seek in our own strength and our own ways to set the evil right ourselves. Kind of like Simeon and Levi did when they massacred a city. But friends, trying to be God is not our job description. Trying to be God is too heavy of a burden for mortals with limitations like you and me. And when we try to put ourselves in the place of God, it leaves us anxious, exhausted, and miserable. There's a profound freedom that comes from saying, you know what? I don't know everything. I'm not in control of everything, but there is a God who is. So I'm gonna let God be God, and I'm gonna be his subject. There's a profound freedom and joy that comes from that. When my kids were about three and five years old, we, they were invited to a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, which I'm not a big fan of, but we went anyway. And for whatever reason, I remember parking in a part of town that was known for having a lot of crime. And for whatever reason, I remember, I remember holding both of my boys' hands, walking through an empty lot and seeing used drug needles on the ground and you could hear the police sirens in the background and... I was a little nervous, but I remember looking down at both of my boys and they were unconcerned. They were oblivious. They had a huge smile on their face. They were skipping along. They were going to Chuck E. Cheese and life was fine. Life was good. In their minds, they did not have anything to fear because dad and mom were there. And their fearlessness makes a point If our kids can rest without fear, knowing that their parents who have real limitations, (laughs) if they can rest without fear knowing that mom and dad are there and in control, church, how much more should we be able to rest without fear knowing that our God, our heavenly father, who has no limits of power or authority or wisdom that he is in control. No wonder Jesus calls us to have a childlike faith. Well, I want us to take verse 19 and I want us to take Joseph's question. Am I in the place of God? I I I want us to try to apply that question in our life. So let me give it, let me just provide an example. Take the upcoming 2024 presidential election as an example. Now, me just mentioning that might give some of you an ulcer, right? Who's going to win? What will the future of our nation be? How will this affect me and my children and my grandchildren? And they raise real serious questions. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, abolish God and the government becomes God. Abolish God, and the government will become the God. And the more secular a nation becomes, I think the more that Chesterton is right. Because instead of trusting in God to transform the evils in society or to transform the evils in our own individual hearts, what happens is when we push God to the margins, people put hope, not in God, but in governmental programs or elected officials. Now, don't mishear me. The Bible's clear. The state has a role, an important role to play in our lives and in society. It's in, the state is instituted by God. It's part of God's plan, and, it's, and, and it's, it's an institution that has been instituted by God for our good. So we should work for and pray for better government. Got it. But the state is not our ultimate hope. The next elected official is not our ultimate hope. The, you know, it might be the hope of a God-ignoring secular society, but it's not the hope of a God-fearing Christian or a God-fearing community of Christians. 
So if we ask the question, am I in the place of God? Our answer is a happy and resounding, no, don't have to be. But neither is the state in the place of God. We don't know who's gonna be elected. We don't know what's gonna happen in the next year or two. We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. But no matter what happens tomorrow or the next year or in this election, God is on his throne. There's no elections for his rule. He's on the throne. He is king right now and he will be king after the election. And he'll be king down the road (laughs) no matter what happens. And so as the sovereign God, we look to him and we trust that he can get sojourners like you and me home. We're not home yet. We may face mockery or persecution. We may get sick. We may lose our friends for our Christian faith. We may sin. We may be sinned against. The world can do its worst. But come what may, we can be confident. We don't need to be afraid because our sovereign God takes what was meant as evil against us and our sovereign God uses it for our good. Or as Paul says in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. Not some things. All things work together for our good. First Baptist, God is sovereign. God, our God, is in control. So live without fear. Live with the confident, happy, generous, forgiving hope that we see Joseph having, knowing that God is in control. We're not home yet, but God is faithful to get us home. And as we meet the roadblocks and the problems and the chaos and the disasters in this world, we know that that will not stop him getting us home because not only is he faithful, he's also sovereign. He's able. But that raises a third question. I mean, being able is not the same as being willing. So God can be able but say, I ain't gonna do it. I'm gonna help you guys. You guys are punks. You guys are a bunch of sinners. So how can we know that God will get us all the way home? In other words, how do we know that God's good? Joseph's Joseph's funeral, the second funeral, delivers lesson number three. Last point, lesson number three. God has come for us, so live with hope. God has come for us, so live with hope. This is verses 22 through 26 of Genesis 50. Let's read the text. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's uh, Ephraim's children uh, of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of Genesis. (laughs) Joseph lived 110 years. And he was blessed by God to see his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And and as we've walked with him, we've seen how God has shepherded him through good times and bad times. But now, at the end of Genesis, it's his time to die. And so he says to his brothers in verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Don't miss that. God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now Joseph knew that Israel would be in, or that the people of Israel would be in the land of Egypt for about another 400 years, because God told Abraham that in Genesis 15. So God would come for them, but it was gonna be a long wait. And so just to make himself clear and to encourage the readers, he repeats himself God will come to you, verse 24, verse 25. God will surely 
come for you. God will come for you, and then he emphasizes it. God will surely come for you. He will surely visit you. The story of the story of Genesis began in Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating a paradise for his people. But it ends very differently. It begins with God creating paradise. It ends with Joseph sitting in a stale coffin, dead, period. Waiting. Waiting for God to bring his people out of Egypt to the promised land. And and Joseph will have to wait a long time in that coffin, 400 years. But after 400 years of waiting, God will be faithful. He will visit his people in Exodus chapter one and he will deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And then we're told that Moses, Moses will take the bones of Joseph and he'll take him to the promised land and he will be buried in the promised land as he instructed his brothers to do. God's word fulfilled, partially. Because guess what? Joseph's bones still sit in the grave in Canaan to this day. He's still waiting for God to completely fulfill his promise about the land. Because friends, God's promise of the land to Abraham is not just about a small plot of land in the Middle East. I know it raises a lot of conflict today, but the Bible is very clear. In the New Testament, Jesus says it's not just about one little plot of land. In the New Testament, Jesus expands the land promise to include the entire earth. God has promised to lift the curse of sin that now sits on this earth and makes us groan. And he has promised to come again and transform earth from a graveyard to a paradise. He will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh 2,000 years ago, Zechariah said very clearly in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited his people. Oh, we've been waiting for that God to come and visit us for a long time. And when Jesus shows up, Zechariah says, it's time. This, and friends, this is what Christmas is about. God has visited us. He has come for us as he has promised. He, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, you'll remember one criminal to his side pled with Jesus, please remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today, today, you will be together with me in paradise. He's gonna turn the graveyard of this world into a paradise. And Jesus says, it's about time. So whether Joseph's brothers or Joseph himself, whether you or I today, the fact is, is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy and without sin, and because God is good and righteous and just, he will judge all sin, including yours and mine and Joseph's and his brother's. And either we will give an account to a holy God for our sin and stand before a holy God on our own two feet or someone else will represent, represent us. And that's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of Christmas. Because as the sinless son of God, Jesus came first to lay down his life willingly as a sacrifice for sin, to be a substitute for any and all who would turn from their sin and trust in him as their savior and as their king. And because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, Jesus became the way, not a way, the way back to paradise, back to a restored, right, satisfying relationship with God. So Jesus came, God visited us first in Jesus to die for sin. But as one writer notes, we today are a lot like Joseph and the Israelites. Think of Joseph sitting in that coffin. Sometimes life feels like Joseph in that coffin, waiting, waiting. God came once, he promised to come again, but now we're waiting. We're waiting for God to come again. We're waiting for God to fulfill his promise to transform a sin-sick world that's groaning 
that hurts, that makes us grieve and weep. When will he come again and make this earth into paradise? And in our waiting, sometimes we lose hope. Creation groans with wars and cancer and violence and car wrecks and natural disasters. And as Christians, we groan due to our own sin. I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of my shortcomings. Well, Jesus came first to die for sin, but he promised to come a second time to bring an end to sin, to bring an end to suffering and sorrow and death. And when he comes again, when the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes a second time, he will wipe away every tear and he will make all things, all things gloriously new. Jesus' first coming proves, Jesus' first coming shows us his heart and his first coming proves that he will come for us a second time. How do we know this? Because Jesus promised and he is faithful and he is sovereign And as he came for us the first time, he'll come for us the second time. One almost close to the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20, ends this way. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. I came once, he promises again, I am coming soon. And so we say with Christians and John in Revelation 22, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And knowing that he's coming, We live with unshakable hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we groan with creation, that our groans are not hopeless. Creation groans as with the pain of childbirth. And when the groans are over, there's life, there's a a child, there's celebration. And so, Father, we thank you that our groaning and our suffering is not in vain because of Jesus. We thank you that you have come in Christ to visit us, to pull us out of our hopelessness and despair, and to give us life. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is still in that darkness, still in that period of hopelessness, and still separated from God. Lord, we pray that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ and know the hope and know the joy and the forgiveness that comes with him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.